Okay. So, um, again, thank you all for coming. And I had an idea to do a sort of continuation of what we did last year, but if we do that, before we do that, and we'll um, say some other things, maybe just some, some news. Um, if you remember what we did last time, who was here last time? We had a kind of class. Yes, many of you were here. Um, and we made some notes, you remember? And uh, from the notes, we, we made some mind maps. And then we photographed the mind maps, and all the mind maps that were photographed were sent to um, Odarya Chandrika, who is in Dubai. Hare <laughs> Krishna. <laughs> so, anyway, we'll get back to that. We can do a little bit of review, perhaps, on the... The basic theme, the subject, of course, is chanting, chanting the holy names, and uh, how do we do this successfully? But I thought before that we do a little bit of uh, what we used to call when I was a small child in school. They had something called show and tell. We were supposed to bring something to school that we wanted to show to the other students, and then we would tell something about what we were showing. Uh, did you have this in school? Show and tell? No? 50% of your life wasted. <laughs> I, d I only remember one occasion that I did show and tell. I think I was in maybe fifth grade. So I must have been about, uh, what, 11, 11 years old. And somehow I got this idea to mm, give a presentation about springs. You know, springs, you know, metal coil things. And I had this whole big arrangement with different types of springs and different weights. And I was making some sort of uh, explanation about, it was a little bit scientific even. <laughs> I don't know why I did this, but I did this. <laughs> and it's still in my memory that this is what I did. Springs, Harikusha. Nothing terribly spiritual. Um, but um, I thought I will do a bit of show and tell. Um, it's one is a show and tell of something in process, and the other is something complete. I guess we can start with what's complete. Um, this is a book called 
The Routledge Handbook of Religion and Animal Ethics. I did not write this book. However, I did write one article, which is in the book. Uh, and this was the first... It was an article that came from a presentation which I gave at the Oxford Center for Animal Ethics. And the title... See if you can figure out what this means. Uh, the subject is Hinduism, because they asked me to speak something about Hinduism and animal ethics in this conference. Okay, so I thought about it, and I wrote something, and then I presented, and then they said, okay, now can you please write it up as a finished product? article and send it and then then they eventually they it takes time to make this sort of a book um, it took at least two or three years so the title of my um, essay the general theme is Hinduism and then it's called animating Samadhi rethinking animal human relationships through yoga. Everyone goes, hmm. <laughs> right. <laughs> so the theme of the conference that I was invited to speak at was animal-human relationships. That was the general theme of the conference. So scholars were invited to speak on that subject, animal-human, human-animal relationships. How do we relate with animals? People relate with animals in so many different ways. And of course, one of the ways people relate to animals is they kill them and eat them. Um, and of course, one of the points I'm making is that in our tradition, we don't do that. <laughs> Rather, we develop relationships uh, recognizing that the animal, the spirit soul is in an animal body. We are spirit soul in a human body. Uh, you could say there's human animal and there's non-human animal. In a sense, we have uh, much. We have much in common with all sorts of animal forms, and it's. Um, it's interesting to think about how how we relate with animals. So then I brought in um, the subject of yoga uh, as as the sort of basic culture that we have for understanding first of all who we are, and then understanding what animals actually are, and then from this. Um, we can understand how we can make a relationship. And I told the story in this uh, article of the yogi who became a deer. Who could that be? Yes, Bharat Maharaj. But I told the story, I mean, I told the story as it is in the Bhagavatam, but I made a little shift in how we usually interpret this story. 
How we usually interpret the story is that Bharata is a story of fall down from yoga. And we know this, how he became attached to the deer and because of his attachment he was so absorbed that when he left, when the end of his life comes, what happens? Boom, next life he becomes a deer. And we could say, we usually say, uh, the moral of this story is, be careful when you're practicing yoga, don't get attached to deer. <laughs> deer fond. <laughs> or, you know, we can uh, extend that understanding in different ways. Okay, that, that lesson is there, and that lesson is also... Um, mentioned in the story, in the Bhagavatam, it's mentioned in one, one verse that this was, he, he essentially, Bharata fell from his position. But here I'm making another suggestion, and that, that is because we know when Bharata becomes a deer, what does he do? Now he's a deer, what does he do as a deer? Yeah, he, we say in English slang, he hangs out <laughs> with these sages. He lives, uh, he stays near this one ashram, or he stays in the ashram, near the ashram. Um, and, of course, we understand from that he's benefiting all the time from their association. And so that's another lesson we get, okay, have association with devotees, uh, with, with sages, with Vaishnavas. That's very nice. But I want to suggest there's perhaps a third lesson here, and that is that Bharata is getting opportunity because he becomes a deer and it's no ordinary deer because he remembers his past life. But as a deer who remembers his past life and therefore is a yogi deer, yogi deer, dear yogi, <laughs> dear yogi, <laughs> yogi deer, um, he has a special opportunity to learn empathy for animals because now he's living as an animal he's in an animal body that's a body which he cannot speak um, he cannot you know act as humans act he's very limited in so many ways and he has to live out his entire life in that way but because he's living as as a deer he knows very well what it means to be a non-human animal when in his next life he is born as as Bharata he's known as huh? Jada Bharata yes he becomes known as Jada because he acts in a sense he acts as an animal intentionally now so that he doesn't get entangled uh, 
so he doesn't get entangled in gramya kata and uh, all the social entanglements. So he just acts like, yeah, kind of like an animal, because now he knows what he wants. He really knows. Now it's all about yoga and bhakti yoga in particular, and that comes out in his uh, speaking with the king. Uh, what's the king's name? Rahugana. Rahugana. So in that extensive conversation he has with Rahugana, it becomes clear that he's actually a devotee, a bhakta. Uh, and so in this life, uh, as Jadambharata, he's completely focused and he's ready to perfect himself in order to go, as Prabhupada would say, back home, back to Godhead. But as, as, a, as a deer, he is learning what it is to be an animal. And this is then a lesson through the Srimad Bhagavatam for us to appreciate animals that we see and perhaps interact with uh, just as we are persons, they are also persons. How do we relate with them? Well, that will depend on the type of animal, uh, and uh, whether we re relate with them also depends on the type of animal. But I bring all of this out uh, in order to explain uh, our essential philosophy uh, of uh, difference between body and soul, transmigration uh, of, of souls. And therefore, because of that reality, this makes all the difference for animal ethics. How do we relate with animals? We relate with animals uh, as potential full persons in one sense. We can say human beings are uh, the the most developed uh, persons, in the sense the body facilitates that we can express, we can feel, um, uh, experience feelings which animals are, have in only limited ways. And on the other side, animals have perceptions that we don't have. Animals are highly perceptive. Uh, what do they say about dogs? The sense of smell is a thousand times stronger, uh, more sensitive than uh, than human sense of smell, something like that. Uh, their ear, their hearing, of course, is also highly uh, developed compared to ours. Um, so dogs actually see the world mainly through their nose and their ears but they are seeing and experiencing. So anyway, like this, I introduce um, Hindu animal ethics in this book. And then the other book is um, still in process, but it's getting there. I just wanted to show you uh, that it's actually manifesting because you've all been hearing about it so much. First printout, here we are of <laughs> uh, 
it's you know it's sort of it's between uh, avyakta and vyakta. <laughs> <laughs> it's, but it's you know in case anyone doubts, it's here. See, <laughs> um, it's getting closer. It's getting very close. I'm hoping actually to submit this manuscript. Um, Krishna willing and blessings of the Vaishnavas, possibly by the end of this next week, to the publisher, and then uh, over the next, well, then it's a process that goes over several months, and uh, the assistant editor of the publisher that I'm uh, working with uh, told me that we can expect the book will be available uh, January or February of next year. And another good news related to it, uh, several of you have been have helped uh, with very generous donations and uh, we have now reached uh, our goal uh, to make it possible for this book to be available for everyone and anyone who wants it uh, completely free of charge through open access in digital form. So you can all uh, get a copy and read it, even without buying it. South of the border, <laughs> a little bit Latin America. <laughs> uh, and then continuing with books, um, I think many of you saw on my Facebook page, but here it is, uh, our first book in Mandarin language. Uh, this is... Uh, this was my master's thesis, uh, Krishna Seva, traditional ritual in the practice of bhakti yoga that I wrote so many years ago. It's been translated. Uh, two devotees in particular uh, spent a lot of time and effort in China. Uh, one in Shanghai, uh, Gopi Krishna Mataji, disciple of Tamal Krishna Maharaj, did initial translation. Uh, and then uh, Prema Sarovara in Beijing has helped to bring it uh, to to the standard uh, that the you know publishing and academic world uh, wants. And uh, what I'm especially happy about is that the book was published legally in China uh, with Yunnan University Press. Yunnan University is a large university in South China. Uh, it's a very respected university. And uh, the editor who arranged for this publishing, I met him uh, in Kunming uh, some months ago. And a um, very, very, very nice person. And he said, the, the truth is, that the fact that we could publish this book is simply a miracle. 
And why is it a miracle? Because normally the government of China would never permit such a book to be published because it's too religious, dangerous, dangerous. But somehow or other, uh, it slipped through the cracks. <laughs> and so we're very happy about that. Uh, it's actually in two languages, Mandarin, or Putonghua, as it's called, and also English. So the Mandarin, I mean the Chinese people who are learning English, they can use the book also, <coughs> double purpose. So um, this is my little book world. <laughs> we have some books on the way. They're still in process. We have uh, an overview of the Bhagavatam uh, is, is also between Vyakta and Avyakta. And uh, it's happening, yes? And Paravidya Mala, which is uh, assorted things. Maybe you can say what it is. Paravidya Mala is a collection of Guru Maharaj's uh, seminars, different seminars, and uh, Actually, the first uh, book also contains his overview of Bhagavad Gita chapters, as far as I remember. And that's <laughs> it. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Now, at this point, you're going to say, well, that's all very well, there's these books, but hey, who has time to read? First, we have to chant 16 rounds, and that's already a problem, right? So now you want to, and then we're supposed to read Srila Prabhupada's books. And then you want us to read some other book? Forget it. Right? Right? Yes? No? Maybe. No. Maybe. A resounding maybe. So, um,. Yeah, I wanted to show you something else, but I'll have to just exp have to explain because you won't. It's much too small to see. Um, so, speaking about books, uh, this is then uh, the subject of reading, and here I want to explain that uh, I think it was. Yeah, it would have been two, more than two years ago. Uh, I was in Mayapur, and now they have this uh, program every two years. Uh, there's the, what do they call it? Uh, International, ILS, International Leaders Sangha, that's it. So leaders of uh, ISKCON, from all over the world, they come, and then there's all kinds of events. There's a lot of seminars and different different things going on, mainly different sorts of seminars. Um, and each year it's been increasing in numbers. I think the first time was about 400 uh, devotees came for that. The next year, 800. I think the next year there were 1,200. Um, so the next year, 
we'll see how many. But in that's every two years, and then between years, they have a smaller sangha, which is just for the sannyasis and the gurus and the GBC members and the BBT trustees. Very exclusive. <laughs> so in that meeting two years ago, um, which went for three days, the main theme was, look you guys, look around at each other and notice how old you are. You're all getting old. You're not getting younger. And so, we need to be asking the question, how is this mission of Srila Prabhupada's going to continue when we're all gone? Because, you know, one after another, we are taking our exit. Uh, we say, exit stage left, you know. It's like uh, you, you have this sort of comedy routine. Someone is dancing on a stage and others want him off the stage, so then they bring this umbrella with a hook on the end of the umbrella and they sort of grab the person by the neck and they pull him off, right? Sort of, and then he's off the stage. So we're all getting pulled off the stage one after another. But more especially in particular, the more senior devotees of our movement, oh, we're getting older. So the question was, with the time we have left, what can we do? What's the best thing we can do or things we can do to make sure uh, that whatever we got whatever we receive from Śrīla Prabhupāda will be passed on uh, in terms of knowledge, in terms of culture, in terms of um, skills, wisdom, everything. So we discussed this for three days. And part of the question was, uh, what practically can we do uh, to encourage devotees to read Srila Prabhupada's books. So that was sort of the question that came up the, at the end, toward the end of the discussion um, two years ago. And then that was continued in uh, the discussion this last March. And this last, uh, or February, in February, um, and this last February, the organizer of this uh, meeting was Hari Prabhu. And uh, a couple of weeks before the meeting, he wrote me an email and he said, uh, Dear Maharaj, da -da 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 -da, uh, this year we're going to do something different. Um, we're going to have um, devotees in this Sangha give the morning Bhagavatam class in the Sangha, just for the devotees in the Sangha. And I want to ask you to give one of those classes. Oh my God. <clears throat> uh, 
I'm supposed to sit there in front of all the GVC members, in front of all the other sannyasis, and give a Bhagavatam class? <laughs> well, somehow I felt like, okay, Krishna, I'll, I'll take this as a challenge. <laughs> Krishna wants me to do this. So what I want to share with you now is a little bit of what I discussed with them. Because Brajabihari said, um, as part of your class, you can select whatever verse you want, and as part of your class, if you could speak on this subject of reading Srila Prabhupada's books and reading, uh, in particular, the, the Bhagavatam. So I thought about it, and this is what I came up with. And you won't be able to see anything from this because you're too far away. And so I will explain. It's a little, it's a yantra. I like yantras. I have another yantra here. This is an education yantra. We might discuss this also. Uh, education yantra, that's something else. But um, this is a Srimad Bhagavatam yantra. <laughs> and, I mean, you could make a Srimad Bhagavatam yantra in so many different ways. The general idea of a yantra, I would say, is a kind of map. And what do maps, what, what do we do with maps? Of course, nowadays nobody has a, we, some of you will remember, we used to have printed maps. Remember printed maps? Yeah, yes. Misha still carries a printed map. Anybody else here carries a printed map? In the car? Really? How, how quaint. <laughs> Nobody carries a map anymore because everyone has it on their mobile phone. Anyway, what's the idea of a map? The idea is to help you understand how to get from where you are to where you want to go. Thank you going to blow off before it blows off. <clears throat> it helps us to get uh, from where we are to where we want to go, but also a map can help us orient ourselves in relation to um, the place where we are. Maybe we don't want to go anywhere, but we want to stay where we are and we just want to know where everything else is around us. And so a yantra, I would suggest, can be a sort of map that'll show us both things, where we are and where we want to go, and also relationships. So one of the relationships, so the, the kind of relationship I want to explain uh, with this yantra is that when we read the Bhagavatam, we're not just reading the Bhagavatam. What do I mean by that? What I mean is that the Bhagavatam itself is connected in so many ways uh, with so many other texts 
but also with other traditions. So here's what I'm going to do is I'll explain this. Um, this yantra, the, the only thing we really need to understand from it is it has four sides. There's the bottom and the top, and then there's the left and the right. And what you see here is actually quite unfinished because I didn't have very much time to prepare this for uh, this talk that I gave, this lecture I gave in the uh, for the GVC and the sannyasis. Uh, so on the bottom of this, I've listed, uh, there's first of all Veda, and we've all heard, there's Rig Veda, Sama Veda, Atarva Veda, Yajur Veda, and then we also have heard of Upanishads, and there's so many Upanishads, some are more prominent, some less. And we all know about the Mahabharata and the Ramayana. Uh, probably you've read some version of both of these, probably abridged versions. Uh, the Ramayana, just the Ramayana has, uh, it's been estimated maybe 300 versions. Um, and then there are so many other Puranas Puranas. Um, we've heard of the Padma Purana, and you've probably heard of the Skanda Purana, <laughs> and um, what other? Agni, and Adi, and well, yes, Narada, Brihan Naradiya Purana, and Vishnu Purana, and Varaha Purana, and Garuda Purana. Oh, we have a Puranic scholar with us. <laughs> 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 yes. And there's other, uh, what we can call Vedic literature, broadly speaking. There's Dharma Shastra, and we might even start adding Ayurveda and Dhanurveda and, and such literature like that. So we're putting that on the bottom of this um, little chart because the Bhagavatam tells us in the very beginning that the Bhagavatam is the ripened fruit of the tree of Vedic literature. So if we think of trees, trees have roots, and in fact the word nigama means going down. Nigama refers to Veda, and so it's, it's the root. So it's extending down, and it's drawing, it's bringing nourishment from the earth and bringing it up into the, into the tree and eventually then uh, we get fruit. And we can harvest, we can take the fruit, offer it to Krishna and we can then relish it. So Veda, Upanishad, all of that we can say is it's nigama, it's below and from that, then we're getting the Bhagavatam as the ripened fruit. Okay, that's simple enough. So then what do we have in this chart on the top, above the Bhagavatam? Well, here I'm suggesting we have our whole tradition of Acharyas, um, because 
we go to pick the fruit, but actually we need help. Um, if we just go and try to pick the fruit ourselves, we may not have much access. I mean, just just the fact that the Bhagavatam is in Sanskrit. So, how much, how how many of us can, you know, fully uh, benefit just reading the Sanskrit of the Bhagavatam? So, Srila Prabhupada helped us out. He translated the uh, the in, almost entire Bhagavatam. And of course, he did so much more than that by write, writing his purports. And his purports are based on the commentaries of so many other acharyas. Um, when I first met Srila Prabhupada, my first service to him was to go with his, uh, sec his servant uh, to the... Um, we were in the airport receiving Srila Prabhupada in Paris and um, the servant tapped me on the shoulder and said, come with me and help to get Prabhupada's luggage. So we went down uh, to where the luggage comes out and I didn't know what his luggage is but the, the servant knew. Uh, so when the luggage came then we picked and I picked up when he pointed, take this one. So I picked it up. It was so heavy. And it was heavy because in those days there were no computers. Can you imagine? <laughs> there were no digital Bhagavatams. Can you imagine? Rather, Prabhupada had this um, edition of the Bhagavatam. Uh, in, it's in several volumes. He wasn't carrying the whole set with him. Um, but it's several volumes. It was published in Amnabad um, in Gujarat in northwest India. Um, but very heavy books. And those uh, that version of the Bhagavatam has several, it's all in Sanskrit, and it has several commentaries to the Bhagavatam published in it. Altogether about 25 commentaries. So Prabhupada was reading those commentaries and then bringing together what he excuse me felt was important and um giving us his bhaktivedanta purports what he felt was important and also his own inspiration and as prabhupada would say he said i uh, he uh, uh the, he said these purports are my ecstasies he was feeling ecstatic as he was reading, as he was writing. <laughs> now, speaking of ecstasy, of course, Srila Prabhupada was in particular drawing from the acharyas of our own tradition. When I say our own tradition, I mean the uh, Brahma Madhva Godia Sampradaya. Um, which means, in particular, Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu and his followers, uh, most especially Srila Rupa Goswami and Srila Jiva Goswami uh, and the others of the six Goswamis, and there are others as well, including Krishnadas Kaviraj. And Krishnadas Kaviraj, as we know, wrote... Um, 
He wrote more than one book, but the book that we are most familiar with, and which is, we can say, very important for us, is Sri Chaitanya Charitamrita. At one point, Srila Prabhupada um, put aside his work translating the Bhagavatam in order to translate one chapter of Chaitanya Charitamrita. Actually, he was working on Chaitanya Charitamrita and then one chapter, namely Adi Lila, uh, chapter 7. Srila uh, Prabhupada decided this chapter is so important, we should publish this as a separate book. And so it was published as a separate book and it was one of the first books that we received when I first came uh, in Germany uh, a few months after I joined the devotees. This book came called Lord Chaitanya in Five Features. And it was explaining about... Uh, it, the Chapter 7 of Chaitanya Charitamrita is... Uh, speaking about the Panchatattva and how they plunder the storehouse of love of God and distribute to everyone whether or not, whatever their qualification is, no qualification, whatever. Uh, the, the lame, the blind, <laughs> it says like that, everyone uh, can benefit. And... Uh, we would read that book and we would become so excited. All the devotees were so excited. Yes, we have to distribute. <laughs> and so we would go running out in the streets and distribute um, Ishopanishad. That was the book we had for distribution in German at the time. But Chaitanya Charitamrita is, what is this book? It is in some ways, a kind of continuation of the Bhagavatam. It's a continuation of the Bhagavatam, and at the same time, it's the story of the perfect reader of the Srimad Bhagavatam. It's about a certain person whose name, when he was very young, uh, was Nimai, and who later became known as Nimai Pandit. To his parents, he was known as Vishvambara. And just a little later, quite surprisingly early in his life, when he was only 24 years old, he took the name Krishna Chaitanya. This is the person who, after, especially after he Accept the, accepted the renounced order, left home and spent the rest of his life uh, reading and discussing the Srimad Bhagavatam and doing what the Bhagavatam says to do, which is to glorify the Lord. And he did this in particular by encouraging everyone to chant the Lord's names. When he would hear the Bhagavatam, what would happen? When Lord Chaitanya would hear uh, Swarup Damodar uh, recite a verse in the Bhagavatam, what would happen to Lord Chaitanya? T 
typically what would happen? He would fall in ecstasy. Have any of you read a verse of Bhagavatam and fallen in ecstasy? Only in sleep. <laughs> Sleeping ecstasy. <clears throat> yes. Which we like to call yoga nidra, right? <laughs> meditation. Deep, deep meditation. Um, so this, this Chaitanya, he would read and he would hear Bhagavatam and when he would do this, he would become overwhelmed. Sometimes he would fall he would faint in ecstasy, sometimes he would dance, he would jump up and down. Now we will say, oh yes, but after all, he is none other than Krishna himself. What do you expect? We are not Krishna, so we are not feeling this ecstasy. That's okay, but Lord Chaitanya would read together with devotees. Every day they would sit together and they would hear and they would relish Gadadhar Pandit especially would recite the Bhagavatam and they would relish uh, again and again. And our tradition, of course, follows from Lord Chaitanya and eventually we have commentary, we have Vishwanath Chakravarti Thakur's commentaries, very rich commentaries. Then we have later, we have Bhaktivinoda Thakur, I'm skipping, of course, so many, but there's Bhaktivinoda Thakur. And Bhaktivinoda is so important for us because he understood there is a problem. The problem is that this Bhagavatam, first of all, it's written in ancient Sanskrit, so it's very difficult from that perspective. But it's also difficult because in his time, he's saying, we live in the 19th century, and this is a different world we live in. How can we relate to this world, which the Bhagavatam tells us, in our modern world? And by the time uh, Bhaktivinoda Thakur is writing, there are already railroads in India, um, and so on. All kinds of modern influences are there. And, of course, his friends are all, they're all giving up reading the Bhagavatam because they say, oh, this is out of date, this is not interesting. So Bhaktivinoda Thakur decides we need to really take seriously this issue and think how to appreciate the Bhagavatam. Bhaktivinoda's son, of course, Bhaktisiddhanta Sarasadi Thakur, takes up the mission of his father, our Śrīla Prabhupāda takes up the mission of his guru, Bhaktisiddhānta Thakur. And uh, especially Śrīla Prabhupāda takes literally the prediction that uh, Lord Chaitanya's um, teaching is going to spread to every town and village. Something that was not taken literally before, was taken only um, figuratively. He takes it literally. Let's spread this movement all over the world. Okay, so we have uh, we have this very rich tradition of commentary which Srila Prabhupada brings together for us in his commentaries. Much of it he brings. 
Um, and I wanted to mention also with Bhakti Vinod Thakur, we have this very special uh, understanding of what is a Vaishnava. A Vaishnava is saragrahi, is someone who, who grasps the essence, who is able to penetrate through uh, what is temporary, what is superficial, what's not important to get at the, uh, the essence. Sara means essence. Grahi means one who grasps. So we are all following Bhaktivinoda Thakur. We're trying to also cultivate that sense of getting the nectar and distributing the nectar, the essence, the sweetness. Okay, that's on the top of this chart. So now, what's on the left side of the chart? Well, here, uh, I haven't developed this side at all except for one point, and this is something I've been talking about somewhat frequently lately, so probably you've already heard it, but here it goes again. Someone asked Srila Prabhupada in uh, 1969 in Los Angeles, at the end of his lecture, he invited questions. His lecture was about the six Goswamis, but in any case, this one lady asked a question, didn't seem related. She asked, what about Joan of Arc? Joan of Arc? And she asked Prabhupada, do you know who is Joan of Arc? And Prabhupada said, yes, I know who is Joan of Arc. Joan of Arc was a warrior saint woman, a very young woman in, uh, what, 15th, 14th or 15th century France. And she was a martyr, actually. Um, and there's a whole story about her, but it had to do with the fighting between the French and the English, something that would go on for centuries. Uh, but she became a hero of the French uh, because of her fighting for the French. Uh, but the, the question before Prabhupada was, what about Joan of Arc? And Prabhupada said, well, kind of, what about Joan of Arc? <laughs> And, but then Prabhupada said something very interesting. He said, anyone who is connected with God, where there is some connection, where there is some relation to God, that is also Bhagavatam. And that's all he said on the subject. He didn't elaborate. He just said, basically, anyone... If you read some literature where there is a connection with God, that is also Bhagavatam. So, of course, that's not part of the, we're told, 18,000 verses of Bhagavatam um, that we know of. But what is Prabhupada saying there? He's giving a different sort of definition of Bhagavatam. If you take the definition of Bhagavatam as Prabhupada also gave this as a kind of definition, the beautiful story of the Supreme Personality of Godhead, and then you understand that the word, and Prabhupada explained in his answer, Bhagavatam means 
the devotees of the Lord. Bhagavan and then Bhagavata. Bhagavata means related to Bhagavan. So that kind of opens up a whole area of uh, possible, uh, how to say, possible connection uh, or expansion or appreciation of Bhagavatam on a, on a broader scale than we usually do. And what I think it suggests is that we don't have to think of the Bhagavatam as something sectarian. It's not sectarian. The Bhagavatam, actually, even going back to how the Bhagavatam is the ripened fruit of the tree of Vedic literature, it's actually intended uh, to get away from the sectarian sense that some people may have been reading uh, the original Vedic literature. That's a bigger subject, but um, this is what the Bhagavatam proper is doing, and we can say from Prabhupada's comment, it expands from there. And finally, one way that it expands, a very important way that the Bhagavatam expands, and that is, and this goes to the right side of my little chart. Remember, it's got four sides, bottom, top, left, right. So on the right side, I put present-day Vaishnavas. That's us. <laughs> That's all of us. All of us who are reading the Bhagavatam, all of us who discuss the Bhagavatam, every time we read uh, by ourselves or read with one other or a group and maybe discuss among ourselves, um, that is also Bhagavatam. And specifically, what's happening when we are reading Bhagavatam and discussing is we're bringing our own experience to the Bhagavatam. Each one of us have our own experience of life or experiences. We have our memories. We have our... Um, all that we've gone through in life. <laughs> and we are bringing all of that to what the Bhagavatam, what Shukadev Goswami, what Narada Muni, what, um, what Krishna himself is speaking uh, to Uddhava in the 11th canto, we're bringing that. And what, we, what I mean by bringing is what we want to do is try to see if we can start a kind of conversation if we had Narada Muni suddenly appear before us what would we want to ask him I know what I would want to ask Narada I'd say Narada Muni Prabhu Maharaj <laughs> can you please give me some tips on how to travel just by playing Veena. <laughs> I would really like to know how to do that because I'm really tired of uh, the modes of travel which I take. I would like to travel uh, 
maybe I can't travel all over the universe, but if I could travel around this planet the way you do, I would be so grateful. I'm, I'm speaking, I'm being silly, but um, we can ask ourselves what would we be wanting to ask uh, the Bhagavatam or asking the Acharyas who are also commenting on the Bhagavatam. And yeah, finally, and this is something you know, I always talk about this and some devotees sort of groan when I speak about this, but I'm just repeating what Prabhupada said, and that is that uh, we, Vaishnavas, present-day Vaishnavas, um, can also write. We can speak, we can read, we can speak, we can also write. Hare Krishna. At this point comes the big silence. <laughs> and everyone sort of looks down at the floor. <laughs> but I just want to throw that out there again. You know, this is something you might like to, to do. It's not something you have to do for others. You can do it just for yourself. Again, you're going to say, well, wait a minute. Now, we're supposed to chant 16 rounds, and then we're also supposed to be reading. And, oh, by the way, I have a family, and I have to maintain the family. And, oh, by the way, I'm also doing uh, service in the temple, and 10,000 other things. So you want me to chant, you want me to read, and now you want me to write? Hare Krishna. Get real. <laughs> but here's my suggestion. Start by writing a question. And then bring that question with you to reading the Bhagavatam and see if something in the Bhagavatam comes to some sort of answer for you. And when you find, if you find, maybe you won't find today or tomorrow, but you keep, you have that question you've written. When, a, when something comes in the form of an answer, an insight, maybe a better way to ask the question, write that down. and then see if you have some related question to that. And in this way, you can build up uh, a reflection, and then you can share that with others. And then maybe it can go in so many different directions. It can become a subject of research. You can go to the index of the Bhagavatam. Did you know that Srila Prabhupada's books have index? Have you seen yeah? Have you ever used it? Yeah? Who has used the index in Prabhupada's books? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So you can use the index. They're quite good indexes. Uh, the Bhagavad Gita index is very thorough. And 
Yeah, all the others, they're very well done. The BBT has make, made a point of this to really make good indexes, so you can use them. And another thing you might want to do, um, last time we started to make mind maps, you might want to uh, experiment with making a mind map of some topic that you are interested in in relation to the Bhagavatam. And one way to make a mind map It's just one way, but you might find it helpful uh, to make some sort of yantra. <laughs> Yantras generally are uh, symmetrical. They, are, they may have combinations of circles and squares and triangles. And, um, yeah. Circles and squares and triangles, <laughs> that's mainly what they have. That's mainly what traditional yantras have. And you can think about, what is what do I want to put in the center of this yantra? The center of a yantra is called the bindu. You know this word bindu? What is a bindu? It's like a that's a bindi. A pivot, a drop, a seed, yeah, all of the above. Yeah, so it's, in any case, it's the center, central point. And what you want with a yantra is, yantras are ways, uh, they facilitate meditation. It's very developed in the Buddhist tradition, tantric Buddhism. You sort of start on the periphery and you meditate, you meditate your way into the center. Yeah, it might be a mustard seed. <laughs> you may end up with a mustard plant. <laughs> so, so, so the yantra is, is a way of focusing. So what I'm suggesting is you might think about creating a yantra as a way of focusing the reading that you want to do. And this can be very creative. You can do this in your own way to see what is it that you are interested in. What is it that moves you? <laughs> We're not going to read unless something moves us. In the Middle Ages in Europe, uh, the Christian tradition, they had something called Lectio Divina. It was a process of meditative reading uh, that was done by the, monk, by the monks. So, Lectio Divina. Can we read in such a way that something moves so that we are enriched, so that what we are doing in our spiritual life is getting nourished. Hare Krishna. What do you think?
And then you might get so inspired, you want to, you have something really interesting, significant, you want to share it with others. You write something. Hare Krishna. And at one point, you may want to even write a book. Yes. We have one devotee in Hong Kong, Sitarani. She got inspired while we were in Beijing. She said, I'm going to write a book. I said, really? You're going to write a book? Yes, I'm going to write a book. What's it going to be about? It's going to be about yoga. <laughs> she's a yoga teacher. <laughs> so she's writing about yoga. She just wrote me a couple of days ago. She said, the book's almost finished. <laughs> she's very quick. Yeah. What's our schedule now? What is our program for prasadam? How are we doing? Ten minutes more. Okay. Well, I think I'll kind of stop there unless someone has a question or a comment we can discuss. Any questions about anything? This time we'll say, doesn't have to be about what I just said. Anything. Ask now or forever hold your peace. <laughs> now is your chance. <laughs> no, I was going to continue our work workshop, but um, it's. I think it's more of an indoor exercise. So, and it's it's nice now. Indra has been very kind uh, to allow Surya to appear. So I'm just happy to speak about whatever, whatever you like. Yes. Because it's a huge. Sometimes you just become discouraged because it's too big. Yeah, it's too big. You cannot just comprehend. Yes. I find myself easily, much easier to read Bhagavad Gita and relish it because I can somehow comprehend, but Bhagavatam is just a huge. <laughs> yes. That's nice. You can all you can just uh you can just read Bhagavad Gita, that's fine. In fact, one way to read the Bhagavatam is that the Bhagavatam is a commentary to Bhagavad Gita. And of course, Srila Prabhupada, how many times in his purports he's quoting a verse or two verses from Bhagavad Gita. Excuse me. Um, so this may be one way to then approach the Bhagavatam is you can say, okay, here's Here's an issue, here's a point, here's a theme in the Bhagavad Gita. And, uh, you know, um, here's one verse in Bhagavad Gita. It, how is this expanded? How is it related in, in the Bhagavatam? So, take for example, I think a simple example we have 
In, canto, in chapter 2, Bhagavad Gita, we have these two uh, famous verses which give a pathology of distraction. I call it a pathology of distraction. Jayato vishayan pungsa sangas te shupajayate sangat sanjayate kama kama krodha vijayate Yes, we all know <laughs> these verses and how it's a sequence starting with jaya, with meditation on objects, on vishaya, on objects of the senses. So where do we find examples of this in the Bhagavatam? And we might say, well, there's Bharata, who later becomes Jada Bharata. We, he's a kind of example of this because he became distracted. He's meditating, jayata, jayana, on this baby deer. And now you might say, oh, but in the Bhagavad Gita it says that uh, one who does this, kama kroda vijayate, after becoming, after kama, desire, then comes anger. Did Bharata become angry? And if he didn't become angry, why not? <laughs> And so that becomes a question. If the Bhagavad Gita says that anger comes from this, so then we look at the Bhagavatam. Is there something more we can understand about that mechanism, that relationship? How does that work? And you may say, well, you know, I'm just not such an analytical person. I don't want to get into things like that. That's okay. Um, but maybe it's helpful to then deal with anger. You might think about how you noticed um, that something happened recently and you felt rather annoyed. You felt maybe kind of disturbed, upset, like, you know, something happened. So then you can think back, okay, what do we learn from Bhagavad Gita? Yes, we have this verse, but was there something I was contemplating and that got frustrated and then I became angry? Is there something in the Bhagavatam that helps me to better understand how that dynamic works? So you could go in that way. Just one suggestion. <laughs> and maybe from there to the Chaitanya Charitamrita because Chaitanya Charitamrita is also it's like a huge commentary on the Bhagavatam yeah. yes uh, let's go gents ladies any ladies questions no okay gents yes Nigam Kalpatara, one second. Okay, second half. Pibata Bhagavatam Rasam Alayam. 
Mahur Aho, Rasika, Bhuvi, Bhavuka. Yes. So it's um, an invitation, and the invitation is to drink. Pibata, and to drink what? Bhagavatam, which is Rasam Alayam. It's a reservoir. Alayam, you could say this cup is a kind of Alayam. It's a container. Rasam Alayam. So the Bhagavatam is a Rasam Alayam. Pibata Bhagavatam Rasam Alayam. And then how how much should we do it? Muhu. What does muhu mean? Again and again. Yeah. Muhu. Muhu. <laughs> and then aho. Aho means it's sort of like English wow. <laughs> yeah. It's an exclamation. Aho. Actually, the aho comes before this. Aho, pibata bhagavatam rasamalayam, mahur aho. Then? Rasika. Yeah, it's being addressed to those who have, um, who are connoisseurs, literally. Those who can, are able to relish rasa, rasika. And where to do this? Bhuvi, on the earth. Don't wait until you get to, you know, Svargaloka or to Patalaloka or wherever, but do it while you're here. Um, Bhavuka, I think, means madman, isn't it? Bhavuka. Most intelligent, yes. But I think it also means madman. <laughs> so... Um, those who are, you know, mad after the nectar, uh, they will relish. So it's addressing those who, and of course, um, what is it? Dharma projita kaitavotra paramo nirmatsaranam satam. It's addressing the sat, those whose lives are. Um, about spiritual life. Their lives are spiritualized and they are spiritual beings, non-material existence, sat. And nirmatsara, they're not envious. And of course, that's the point where we, we read and we go, oh, I guess that counts me out. I'm not non-envious and I'm not a rasika. So I guess I have perfect excuse to not read Srimad Bhagavatam. <laughs> but um, there's, it's, it's a trick verse. It's inviting to become Nirmatsara. It's inviting us to become Rasika. How do we become Nirmatsara? How do we become Rasika? By reading Srimad Bhagavatam. That's how we do it. Now, another thing I might say um, just comes to my mind. Uh, and this 
was um, in our discussion in Mayapur about how to encourage devotees to to read Prabhupada's books. So I don't remember if I brought it up, but somehow it was brought up um, about um, Mahatma Prabhu's book, very nice little uh, Japa Affirmations book. And uh, then the idea came of having a similar book for reading. So reading affirmations. <clears throat> so again, silence. Um, what would a reading affirmation be? Can anyone think of an affirmation for reading Bhagavatam? This, what is an affirmation? An affirmation is a positive statement in the present tense. I relish Srimad Bhagavatam. Okay. I get to read Srimad Bhagavatam. Yes. <laughs> Any others? I love to read Srimad Bhagavatam. Okay. By the mercy of Guru and Krishna, I understand what I read. Very good. I just finished all Bhagavatam and I'm very happy. <laughs> I just finished the whole Bhagavatam and I'm very happy because finally I'm done. I don't have to read it anymore. <laughs> finally I can read the things I really want to read. <laughs> Very nice. I, I have association of devotees who also relish shim, reading Srimad Bhagavatam with me. Yeah, these are nice. So this can be also a practice uh, to make an affirmation as you begin to read. You can make your own affirmations. So, speaking of affirmations, I have an affirmation I want to make uh, on a different subject. I relish Mahaprasadam <laughs> when it is ready. <laughs> this seems to be a kind of a affirmation that we can all relate to, isn't it? Yeah, Hare Krishna. So, I think we'll end there. And again, thank you so much. We'll, we can hang out. Um, we can do more kirtan after, if you like. We're in no rush. Whoever needs to go after prasadam, that's fine. But uh, you're also welcome to hang out. And maybe we just have some kirtan here. Looks like we're going to be okay here. Oh, and you're also, everyone is welcome to go upstairs and um, have darshan of the deities, Shalagram Shilas, and yeah, who do we have there? Haridas Thakur is there. 
and uh, Garuda is there, and and if you want to just sit and chant there, that's fine. Um, if you need a dry place to take prasadam, there's here, and there's also inside. I think I'd prefer downstairs for eating, but could also be up if necessary. Is that okay? Srila Prabhupada ki jai, Ananta Koti Vaishnava Vrinda ki, Gaur Premanande. Jai.